This is the Critical Conversations podcast, a KPOV special project developed to feature unique perspectives and the courage it takes to go there challenge mundane thought, and question the norm. Sam Quinones, it's great to speak with you. We're talking about your latest book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Really nice to be with you, Don. Thanks so much for taking the time. As a journalist, storyteller, former Los Angeles Times reporter, you've been doing this work. This isn't your first book on fentanyl and meth. What got this started for you? You know, I I was... I believed it was just simply a, a story that needed to be told. I don't have any personal connection to it. I had come, I'd lived for 10 years in Mexico. I come back from Mexico in 2004, worked for the LA Times. And a few years after that, I began to realize that we we're seeing an enormous increase in, in heroin seizures at the border, meaning more and more people using heroin in the United States. I could not explain that. Long story short, eventually began to focus on heroin trafficking, and I realized that, uh, in particular, one town that was very big and in, in, uh, where, the, where the guys had a, a system of selling heroin, very much like pizza delivered with mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a radio kind of a dispatch system or an operator dispatch system. They were very big in Portland. Uh, for quite a long time, added significantly to the overdose death rate in Portland through the 90s and into the two, 2000s. And that led me to then understand that the reason there was an increase in, in, in all this was because of the opioid ep- epidemic and, uh, and the, 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 the spread of, of uh, the wanton prescribing of prescription pain pills. That then led in turn to, you know, stories of that we're seeing more recently of the Mexican trafficking world getting into synthetic drugs, primarily fentanyl and methamphetamine, and using that opioid-addicted consumer population across the country as kind of a, uh, a trampoline into that new market. Well, and that's, that's what's thing that's really interesting, too, is when you talk about opioids and addiction, we don't necessarily think about it as a family member who's living in their home, functioning day-to-day. We think it's somebody that might be struggling that's on the street that we, yeah. you know, it, and it's, it's not. This, this opioid addiction and where this is entering into, it touches all of us in all areas. I would agree. I would say that that is the, the, the thing that really Americans came to understand is that it's far more widespread than they ever imagined. And that, yes, there are lots of folks who are living in, with families who are kind of trying to figure out how to deal with this uh, addicted loved one's uh, uh, drug use. Um, at, at times, I would say those, those people who may start out in, you know, middle-class life uh, and so on end up on the street because of this, because the family can't take it anymore, because the, the family has gone through, you know, mortgages and not to mention trust, love, and, and, and a huge emotional roller coaster dealing with folks who are uh, with their loved one on this. And so you find that, that while people, very often this starts in families that, that don't on the surface seem to, ha- seem to have many problems, they have, seem to have everything together, uh, this issue uh, it tends to just corrode uh, all that and leave n- not just the person, the loved one, but, but like the entire family, sometimes the entire extended family, just, you know, brutalized by the, by the whole thing. And so, and, and the fact was that this, that these pills, which is really the, the, the root of all this, the start of all this, were, were prescribed nationwide in, in staggering wanton amounts, if you ask me. And what that means is that you saw this take place all across the country. It was not just a few areas, a few urban areas, not just Appalachia, not just the Rust Belt. It was a lot of suburbia, very well-to-do 
suburbia, in fact, in Orange County, in uh, suburban Portland, et cetera, on and on and on. You began to see this all across the country because the people who were supplying the drugs, essentially the drug companies uh, pushing doctors to prescribe and then the doctors prescribing, were all across the country. A similar thing has now taken place with, with fentanyl and methamphetamine. The, the trafficking world has put out, made such quantities of this stuff down in Mexico, both meth and fentanyl, that they have essentially covered the entire country, much the same way that the drug industry covered the United States with prescription pain pills. Well, what I found interesting, too, and I mean, so much in this book, like I said, I felt very naive reading it, like, wow, I had no idea. I feel like I've been in my own little bubble is is just how much everything is the synthetic drugs it's not how easy it is right. to make these these drugs today yes. and you were you were not alone don everybody uh, this has been something that many people have had got have to uh, under uh, come to understand uh, but it is the new world of drug trafficking down in mexico this happens only because Synthetic drugs make sense to traffickers in Mexico. It has nothing to do with really with so much the demand for drugs up here. No, no heroin user ever demanded uh, fentanyl. Um, and, and the new meth that's coming out of, that's been made in a different way out of Mexico in the last 10 years has been a dramatic in its creation of s- symptoms of schizophrenia, the dramatic uh, increases in mental illness and homelessness and tent encampments and all of that. All of this, though, it starts because it's in their interest. They don't have to, with, with synthetic drugs, chemically-based drugs, they don't have to use rainfall or land or, or, or sunlight or farmers to harvest and the seasons. There's no seasons anymore. All that matters now is whether you control certain uh, uh, shipping ports, and they do in this trafficking world. They control particularly two very large shipping ports on Mexico's western coast, about a two-day uh, two drive, say, down from Arizona. And you've got just simply staggering quantities of precursor ingredients coming into Mexico now by the by the container load daily. And, and this allows them to make quantities of drugs that, that all kinds of people now are getting into. This is a, a vast industry now. Lots and lots of people are are making it, have learned how to make it, have worked in labs and start their own, that kind of thing. And so what you're finding is the quantities of the, that they are producing is just, it's just through the roof. And that is why, in, in an unprecedented fashion, they have covered the entire country. One source has never done this before. Covered the entire country with an illegal drug, not one illegal drug now, but in fact two, and at the same time dropped the price. The price for meth across the country in most areas I've, I've learned of, you know, it's, it's at 80% less a drug price drop compared to like say five, six, seven years ago. Talk about fentanyl. When, when did that enter the scene? And how potent is that? Well, fentanyl, yeah, fentanyl is a magnificent drug. People need to understand that. It was invented in surgery. It has revolutionized surgery. It has made it very easy for people to do all kinds of surgeries that weren't really possible uh, 60 years ago. Uh, it came out in 1960. And uh, it's just very, very potent. And its key to its anesthesia is that it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. So you do the operation, and within minutes, the person who was uh, doped up now is coherent and walking away and saying hello to the doctor and all that kind of stuff. That is exactly that potency and that in quick in quick out is exactly what makes it a perfect drug for traffickers and a torment for users. Now users 
when they're addicted to fentanyl, if they've survived their first exposures to fentanyl, they generally can become addicted. No one ever ever lasts long on fentanyl. There's no such thing as a long-term street fentanyl user, but you can um, hang in there for, for like two, three years maybe. The, the thing about fentanyl is it takes you in and out, so you are always having to use all day long. So I say no heroin addict ever wanted to be transitioned passive sense to 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 fentanyl because it means you now have to use constantly throughout the day three four five six times a day whereas a heroin addict generally two three times a day and you keep that dope sickness away now it's like every several hours and it really is never fully away from 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 you and of course it's extraordinarily deadly what that does mean though is that this drug is very profitable for dealers because now they're selling to people who are using maybe two maybe three times in quantity that they used to use with with they have to shoot up at least uh two or three times the amount that they used to do uh with with heroin just get a far more a far better customer and that is where we find ourselves today many many people now have been transitioned away from whatever they were using could be uh, uh heroin could very easily also be cocaine fentanyl laced into the cocaine methamphetamine now we're seeing examples of marijuana and you you and so you find people now addicted to fentanyl when really what they really thought they were buying uh, maybe initially was a cocaine or a pill that looked like a Percocet or an Adderall or a Xanax bar. Those are also now being produced by the tens of millions, I would say, down in Mexico. And all of this really gets back to, again, as I was saying, this simply staggering uh, supplies that are coming out of Mexico right now with absolutely no fear of law enforcement or government intrusion in, 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 into this trade, seems like. How does a drug like fentanyl that has a medical use get to the street? How does that get discovered? How do these, these drug dealers discover fentanyl and then use it? Uh, there have been occasional underground chemists who produce little batches of it, and you see these little flare-ups of, of mortality through the 80s and so on. Um, but the, the, the Sinaloa drug cartel is a fascinating story. The Sinaloa drug cartel, they tell in, in the least of us, the, the Sinaloa drug cartel discovered that because there was this underground chemist that they employed to make ephedrine. Now, ephedrine is a chemical used in one method of making methamphetamine. This guy had been and lived in most of his life in the United States, spoke better English and Spanish. He cooked fentanyl in San Diego, um, not very well, uh, got arrested, did a good number of years in prison, learned how to make it better from a number of chemists he was uh, associated or met in federal prison. When he gets out in the early 2000s, he's deported. The Sinaloa drug cartel contact him, and one, one branch, one element within the Sinaloa drug cartel, contacts him because they want him to make ephedrine. They are afraid that the Mexican government will cut down on ephedrine importations, and they'll make it more difficult to make their methamphetamine. So they're looking for another source, and they hire this guy. This guy, though, thinks he's smarter than everybody else. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make fentanyl. They don't know what this is. I know I know better than they do. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. Unbeknownst to them, he makes a bunch of kilos of fentanyl. And then he tells them, and they get very mad for a bit, but he sits them down. He says, no, you don't understand. This is the most profitable drug you will ever, ever see. And we know this because of, uh, he was extensively uh, interviewed by the DEA agents. I interviewed the DEA agents, and this was their, their uh, recollection of the conversation with the guy. And he told them, these, these traffickers, this, this stuff that I make, 
is like a synthetic heroin, so you don't have to drink, grow poppies anymore. He was making it in a lab. That meant something to him right there. But he also said, plus, you can cut this 50 times, meaning one kilo can be cut into 50 kilos and still be sellable on the street. Nobody believed that. And they did some testing, and the test, test marketed it. Literally, that's what the wiretaps showed, that they were, like, testing it in Chicago. They sent it up to Chicago and then Detroit, and pretty soon they're getting back. Yes, it's working. It's amazing. People love it and all that kind of stuff. That, then the lights go on in the Sinaloa Drug Cartel that, that this is um, a synthetic heroin, no more poppies, and it's amazingly potent. You don't have to you – can, you can cut it 50 times. And so that is where they first understand – the power of fentanyl as a synthetic drug. You don't have to grow anything anymore. The problem is that they then lose that chemist. He gets arrested within about nine months. That lab that he sets up is the first time we see real mass die-off due to fentanyl. There's a period of maybe like a year or so, not quite, in which thousands of people die in Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, because nobody really understands how potent this stuff is. This really has not been sold widespread. They kind of don't have a source for how to make it for a while on the Sinaloa Drug Cartel. The Chinese step in. The, the Chinese chemical companies begin selling it online. And many of the people who buy it from them are in the, the states where the opioid epidemic has hit first. Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia. They're very bad at mixing it because fentanyl, it's, a, it's like a lottery ticket, but you got to know how to mix it with other powders because it's too potent. There's so, a few grains of it will get you high. A couple more will kill you. But either way, you're not going to be able to sell a few grains of this stuff on the streets. So they have to mix it with something else. In time, though, the, the Chinese government cracks down on the production of fentanyl, reduces the number of companies can legally make it. And the Mexican uh, trafficking world, meanwhile, has been learning how to make it. And so by 2017, you're beginning to see the Mexican trafficking world master the production of fentanyl. And then China becomes a source, not of fentanyl, but of ingredients with which the trafficking world can, in Mexico can make fentanyl. And then you begin to see them take advantage of the vast ability to smuggle drugs through the 2,000 miles of border, through um, uh, with, with trucks, with, because of free trade, because we don't have nearly the ability at the border to, to check more than a few percentage points of, of the numbers of trucks and cars that are coming across. And that's when you begin to see fentanyl go from the Midwest to the east and the west. And that's when you begin to see it hit, hit the western coast, California, Oregon, et cetera, about 2018, 19, right in there. And by the time COVID comes around, basically they have covered the entire country with fentanyl, as, as well as methamphetamine. That's another story, though. It's amazing information. I mean, reading through it, it's so disturbing. Like, how did we get here and how do we save somebody? But that's that's a whole nother discussion. But just reading, you know, yeah. in L.A. Times, the op-ed there that you wrote, that some yeah. users could smoke up to 50 to 100 pills a day. Right. And that may be the, I mean, literally, that's what's going on on the border now. The, the pills are coming in because a function of the supply. One of the functions is that they're producing just staggering quantities of these look-alike counterfeit pills that look like Percocets or Xanax or Adderall or Oxycodone generics, the press blues, as they're known. And you, you, the first bust of those pills was in uh, 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 2017, at uh, 12,000 pills. Like, now they're capturing uh, hundreds of thousands of pills every day in one border crossing. You know, it's just uh, you're talking about tens of millions of these pills, I think, 
uh, coming across. And in certain areas, they're pretty cheap all across the country, but they're dirt cheap down on the border area. And so in the southern Arizona, I have a number of sources telling me that they have people in, in, in drug treatment and so on who have just, you know, they're smoking the pills. You don't need to inject them. They're so potent. They're, they're smoking about 50 to 100. That, must, that may be, in fact, as a group, the highest tolerance to an opioid that a human being has ever achieved. I, I just can't imagine going any higher. What it means is, though, if you're in that situation, you are using all day long. You don't get a rest, but you're, you're kind of finding the pill and smoking it every hour, every two hours at the most, you know, that kind of thing, because it's this rat race to keep the drug sickness away, and you've got to constantly feed that dragon. You know, and looking at this and thinking about the drug user who knows how to administer, how to smoke, how to, the dosage, yeah. but then we hear about the, the horrific stories of the high school student or the college student that just takes a right. hit, takes one, and it kills them. Sure. Trying to connect and that, that is, dot is just... Well, there's really kind of two markets in a sense, the, for, particularly for the pills, the pills are, for a long time, they were made to look exactly like what they were trying to imitate, particularly the oxycodone generic press blues, little blue pills with an M for Malincrop, the company used to make those. They, were, they were, did, went to great lengths to make them look that way. Now, I don't think they care anymore because all they, they have, they know their market is made up of people who are, who are frankly simply addicted to fentanyl, and they don't care in what form of fentanyl comes. They just need it every day to keep the dope sickness away. But there is another market, and that's the street market I'm just described, or the, 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 the more, more seriously addicted. Then there's this other market of kids who are finding that, that, that now the dealers with so many of these pills available to them have set up shop on Snapchat or in Instagram or TikTok or some of these other uh, social media apps. And these are kids who don't know a thing about what they're doing. They don't know a thing about what's involved in these pills. They don't know a thing that they, they think it's a Xanax bar. They're anxious. They, you know, particularly on COVID, they were at home. They're on the only way they interact with the world is with their smartphone and the social media apps. They're seeing the stuff advertised. They buy that stuff and it, all it has is fentanyl. And there's no chance they have the tolerance to, to withstand even one of those pills. And a lot of times this is what was happening. Uh, I was at a protest in front of Snapchat headquarters in June of 2001, 60, 80 parents, all with placards, posters saying Snapchat is complicit in the murder of my son, daughter, all of which, all of whom died during the COVID year plus, and, and all of whom were buying these drugs sold anonymously on Snapchat by dealers who now have so many of these pills. It's really the supply has solved the dealer's great conundrum through history. It's always been, where do I get dope, get dope to be able to sell? Now it's, you, you don't have to worry about that. You can find it any, anywhere. Now the big question is, where do I sell it? Well, during COVID particularly, social media apps became in the street corner. And, that, and I think that's still continued on. Talking about our homeless, our tent camps, reading in one of the articles that the, the narrative for those situations is that housing prices are too high and they can't afford it, so they have to live in these tents, they have to live in the street. We need to really kind of pull back a lot of layers in that narrative because that isn't always accurate. Not everybody, number one, that lives 
on the street in a tent wants to live in a home. There's the drugs, there's the depression, there's all kinds of things that fall into that yes. narrative that we really, right. for some reason, we don't want to talk about it or the narrative does not want to go that direction. Yeah. Yes, I found this very strongly when I was doing my book. And the point is this, that this all grows from the idea that in Mexico in the last 10 years, they changed, had to change the way they made meth due to some regulations, due to some government actions. They had to change. So they find a new way that involves a whole lot more chemicals, but it allows them to make, because they can get all these chemicals from the, from the uh, world chemical markets through those ports I was talking about, it allows them to make quantities of methamphetamine that are, again, simply staggering and very much like the fentanyl story, just in simply their ability to make this stuff. That meth ha begins to march in enormous quantities across the country, about 2000, let's say 12, 13, right in there. It's the Midwest where, where there's never been any Mexican meth, just like small shake and baker, small time cooks in a motel somewhere, uh, and gets rid of all of them. It outcompetes all of them by 2017, 18, right in there. 2019, it's all the way up in New England. It's covered New England, and no longer do you have, uh, and that was an area that never had any meth. To speak with, you have nationwide coverage of this meth due to this new way of making meth that is, allows them to make quantities that we've just never conceived of before. But along the way, the other story that, the, that I broke in the least of us talks about how with this meth, what also accompanies it is very rapid onset symptoms of mental illness, primarily schizophrenia, very intense, very scary paranoia, complete delusions, hallucinations, very profound hallucinations, um, inability to order one's life. Very quickly, things go way out of control. You're up three in the morning screaming at demons. Very quickly, people lose their homes or their housing, whatever form that takes, and they're out on, on the street. At the same time, homelessness is a, is a very complicated problem because there's so many reasons why people end up homeless. Drug addiction, and certainly this methamphetamine is certainly one of the, the most, more important ones, but there are many. Domestic violence, aging out of foster care, leaving prison without family. But whatever the reason, by the time the, this meth is so prevalent on the streets, by the time people are leaving, becoming homeless during that period, during the last several years, and it depends on where you are, um, the, the, the meth so prevalent that by the time you're homeless, you are, you, it, many people turn to using it. You can stay up all night. You, you, can, you can kind of deal with the grim reality of where you are and kind of divorce yourself from the grim reality of where you are. And what ends up happening is that regardless of why you initially became homeless, this meth will keep you homeless. It will inure you to the worst of it. It will keep you, um, uh, uh, it kind of uh, uh, cushion you from the, the, the grimmest of the of possibilities, and it keeps you up, able, better able to protect yourself, better able to better avoid rape and all, all the rest. And so this is what you're seeing all across the country. I believe it's a national story, defies the idea that homelessness is solely due to affordable, lack of affordable housing, because this is happening in rural parts of America, in Rust Belt, parts of America. I wrote about three chapters in, the, in a town in West Virginia where this is definitely what was happening. They had no homeless at all until this meth arrived, and then pretty soon hundreds of people are, are homeless. Great devastation to their, to their town. Um, and there's simply no problem with affordable housing in that, that town. And so it seems to me like this contra goes contrary, though, to this reigning narrative that all homelessness 
is due to the lack of affordable housing, and therefore the sole way of dealing with it is through building affordable housing. I think this myth is showing that, that a big part of this is uh, of this pro- homeless problem that we're seeing across the country is due to drug addiction and mental illness. Very, very clearly, if you spend any time on the street at all, this is very clear. Um, a lot of times, though, activists uh, don't want to hear this, and they have a, a certain political power, particularly in certain areas. I think in Oregon, their, their power is pretty profound, certainly in L.A., San Francisco, the same thing. And you don't get a lot of room for other uh, points of view that may, I think, reflect reality far more acutely. Well, I don't think they realize how much harm they're actually causing without really getting in the trenches and, and doing work similar to what you're doing to find out exactly individually why some of these individuals are homeless and what's going on there. It does feel to me like like narrative ideology is trumping reality and simple, you know, reporting, basically go to, I mean, I found it fascinating that I broke this story in the least of us, that meth was a, was creating a mental illness and therefore homelessness and tent encampments too, by the way, tent encampments are a perfect place. If you're in, if you're, if you are uh, on meth, the last place you want to be is a, is a, is a homeless shelter off the street. You want because it's crazy. All these people, they're very scary to you now because everybody's, you're paranoid about everything. And tent is a perfect place. You're in this little pod away from the world, plus you're around other people who have the dope. It's a highly addictive substance. And so you have best of, of both worlds. And so you, I, I, I think that this has kind of led folks to, you know, be very, very diff, intractably homeless frequently. I would say, however, it, it, it struck me as I was writing the least of this, in which I was writing the story, and, and I was afraid I would be scooped. And I was looking around. Nobody was writing about this. No one was talking about this. Newspaper reporters in about a dozen cities I could name right now could have written the story that I wrote in the least of us about the very, very clear and very severe symptoms of mental illness and, and schizophrenia that this meth is creating. But two or three, four or five years ago, very easily, and nobody did. And I think it's because frequently newspaper reporters are kind of captured, a lot of them very young. There's a lot of turmoil in the newspaper industry, a lot of cutbacks. And they kind of take their narratives from people who are easy to take their narratives from. And, and also, I would say, are frequently are young like them. And, and, you know, maybe they go to the same parties. I don't know. There's a, there's a kind of a... A kind of a culture and environment in which they all want to operate. And, um, and, and so you're getting this lack of willingness to even propose this idea or even address this idea when if you spend any time on the street, you could see how important drug addiction and mental illness are to solving problem. Again, regardless of why someone is initially homeless, and there are many, 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 many reasons, but these drugs, particularly methamphetamines, seem to just keep people mired, chained to the street. You want to talk about mass incarceration? Mass incarceration is going on in every tent encampment in America, it seems to me. Not everybody is, is a drug addict in a, in a tent. Not everybody is mentally ill. But so many people seem to be afflicted by one or both of those and, t- and just tied, chained to the, to, the temp- to the point where the temperatures will drop. They'll be faced with, you know, frostbite, losing digits, freezing to death. And this is happening uh, over the last several years. And still people won't leave the tent. Still people refuse treatment. Still people will refuse housing. It's an amazing idea. With current state of the border, 
which that's another huge narrative. How much how much meth and fentanyl and other drugs are coming across? Oh, I wouldn't have a clue, but enough to cover the country and drop the price nationwide. Let's put it that way. And we ha- we don't really have a history of pricing for fentanyl. It's kind of hard to develop that pricing given the nature of the drug. But with methamphetamine, we certainly do. And um, the moment I'm in Nashville, and Nashville, for example, six years ago, the narcs here were calling, telling me they, they, they were buying, undercover, they were buying a pound of meth for $19,000. Now it's generally $3,000 roughly right in there. Um, that is a stunning idea. That's in Nashville, you know, and you're seeing this across the country. Basically, it's, a, it's 70 to 80 percent price drop, which means that the, the quantities that are coming across um, and it has to be coming to, to achieve these quantities. It's coming across in trucks. It is not coming across packed around the midsection of of people. They just can't get that. It's logistically impossible to achieve what we're seeing nationwide in the country today with people having like things around their body. You know, something that happens. It certainly happens. It's just that's a small amount of what is actually being sent across in trucks. And, and so what is the amount? I don't, I don't know. We have a Mexican government that isn't really paid a lick of attention to this, in my opinion, the way it needs to, I should say. We also have a very big issue in this country with the sale of assault weapons. Assault weapons have smuggled, are, are, are constantly being smuggled down to Mexico where they ensure the impunity of traffickers who then are able to use those guns to make sure that they can make the quantities that are killing us. And that dates almost in exactly to the end of our ban on the sale of assault weapons, which took place in, in 2004, when a 10-year ban on assault weapon sales ended, began in 94, ended in 04. And the next year, you began to see the real uptick in violence among cartels. And from there on, it just got, it escalated and escalated. And it's clear that many of those guns so many of those guns come from here. So we are arming the people who are poisoning us. That's another issue that I don't think a lot of Americans pay a lot of attention to. I believe it needs to be really front and center, a, a national policy and also an, a, an engagement with Mexico that may be difficult, may be conflicted and tense and so on, but nevertheless needs to happen. Because otherwise, uh, this doesn't need to ha- What's going on now is, is unnatural. It's a, it's a reflection of a criminal capitalist taking over and kind of being able to do whatever they want. And that's what's going on in Mexico, and they're doing that with very often with the guns that we have, we have so easily sold to them and smuggled to them. What's being done today? Is, are, are we seeing in movement attention, DEA support? What's, what's happening at, at our well, local level? I would say the DEA has, been, yeah, the DEA has been on this for a bit. I think that um, there has been lately, I would say it seems like the agency has not put as much effort into dealing with the chemicals in Mexico. But I would say, too, that, you know, given the the tensions and the the conflicts between the two governments, that maybe that's kind of a natural outgrowth of just the problems that we face in trying to collaborate. The history that we have together, a very conflicted history. I lived in Mexico for 10 years, was a writer down there for a long, long time, wrote two books about the country. I don't uh, minimize the, the deep historical antagonisms that have grown up, and that's quite another conversation. 
but but nevertheless, um, uh, it, it's it's a big part of what's what's going on at the border. Um, I do believe, though, that it's in clearly, clearly in everybody's interest that there be this very deep collaboration between these two countries. Um, I believe Mexico needs to be pushed to deal with the the corruption that is just crippling uh, major parts of the of, of the country, and we need to get wise about assault weapons and what exactly how they are connected to the toxic prevalence of these uh, drugs on, on, our, on our streets, killing us uh, in record numbers. Well, I've always wondered, too, why Mexico hasn't been held accountable. Um, I understand why people are wanting to leave. I mean, the, the people that really want to leave, not, not the, uh, the mules and, and the drugs that are coming over. But at the same time, Mexico, why don't you care more about your people? Um, yes, and that would be a very long conversa- <laughs> conversation about Mexico, because there's certainly a, a vast swaths of the country that are just outraged by what's going on here. And, and with the, 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 the power and the, the crippling effect that they have on the economy, et cetera, of trafficking, uh, the traffickers that, that have grown up and believe themselves to be kind of brazen and, uh, and untouchable. Sure. And I, I do believe that part of the problem is that, that American presidents, this one and the last one, have seen that their issue is more connected to uh, having Mexico prevent illegal immigrants from coming up from Central America and other parts of Latin America. Because the illegal immigration from, from Mexico is not what it once was. But the immigration from other parts of the country, countries, other places in, the, in, in Latin America certainly has increased. So Mexico seems to be like this linchpin in our immigration policy. And to avoid the, the, the problems associated with that, we tend to kind of look the other way when it comes to drug issues in Mexico. And, you know, Donald Trump allowed a, 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 a general who had been arrested at the DEA and it sounds like, from my interviews, remarkable evidence of his uh, collaboration with drug traffickers in the state of Nayarit, which is on the Pacific coast, just south of Sinaloa. Um, and yet Donald Trump sent him, sent him back because the president of Mexico asked him to because he's kind of beholden to the army. And Donald Trump is beholden to that president because he wanted him to... Uh, because he asked the, the president to, to stanch the flow of, of immigrants coming up from Latin America. I mean, it's like this complicated thing. And yet here's this general who, who for whom, on my understanding, again, from interviews I've done, uh, just stunning amounts of information about uh, taped cell phone calls of him talking to the local cartel chieftain and that kind of thing in, in the state of Nairi. And still we send him back. He should be in prison today if the evidence was as I was told it was. Um, and, and so you see, you see kind of immigration is a complicating factor. And, and, of course, free trade is a complicating factor. We can't track many of the trucks that come across because if we did, we would slow down the, 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 the processing to such a degree that, that factories in the United States would not be able to get their supplies, their, the, the, the things that they use to make other goods, or they wouldn't, you know, the, the avocados and the tomatoes would rot, all that kind of stuff. And so all of this is kind of, Made very, it's a complicated thing. I don't want to make it, you know, um, uh, make it seem as if it's an easy thing to solve. It is not. It is extraordinarily difficult, but it does require solutions come once you put your mind to it. And so far, there has been a a real lack of interest in the Mexican government today um, in doing that. It's been very little done about the guns, it seems to me, coming from the United States over the last 30, 40 years. So all of that kind of combines to create a a difficult panorama. Sam, who do you want reading this book, The Least of Us? Who is it for? (sighs) 
Yeah, that's a good question. I always think I'm writing for the, the families of a loved one who's addicted to one of these drugs. That's the way I did with Dreamland, my first book on this topic. I, it, it seems to me that the be- that's the best target audience, not because that's the only target audience, but that's the one where if you write for them, you make it clear for them, everybody else will understand what you're talking about. It's got to be as clear as you can make it for the people who really aren't deeply involved, for whom this is just this, you know, blow out of the blue. And um, you need for them to understand, and that is really most of the American public. Now, there's certain people, of course, who read the book, public health folks, law enforcement, judges, what have you, who may know great chunks of this story already. But to me, what I'm trying to do is, is reach out to Americans who've had this issue in their lives in some way and say, this is how this happened how these, the drugs got so cheap and so prevalent. This is how your boy ended up schizophrenic uh, in a tent um, in Sacramento or in Portland or in uh, rural Indiana somewhere. You know what I mean? So that is kind of, to me, has always been the best idea. You write for the person that you can easily visualize and the person for whom once that person understands it, pretty much everybody's going to understand it too. Where can we find your work, Sam, and learn more about your books, read them. Oh, uh, my books are available online. Every story you want to mention, uh, <laughs> it's uh, Audible, it's um, Amazon, it's eBooks, and uh, all the social media now that you need to be a part of. I guess Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. On Instagram, I'm at Sam Kenyonis underscore author, and I've been putting up snippets there. I mentioned that because I've been putting up snippets of interviews that I've done with people anonymously, not mentioning names or places and all that kind of thing. But just to give people an idea of what people are actually saying who live in this world, who work in this world, and as a way of just simply saying, this is the kind of work I do. This is why I'm saying why I'm saying it. I also see this book as, as in my mind, I just keep thinking of parents and for their middle schoolers, high schoolers heading into college so they can educate themselves you know we hear about the skittles on the street and things like that and my kids are adult children so i don't have that necessarily that concern you know you don't look at drugs anymore you can't say it's recreational use i mean it's life or death we we have reached the end of the era of recreational drug use in america something will put an end to it a couple years a few years ago (laughs) if you ask me (laughs) now nothing you can you can't trust anything on the street or at a party to not include fentanyl i mean no line of cocaine in america is trustworthy in that way i think anymore and so yes all of this is is part of the a part of the story i want i want parents to understand as i tell my kids wherever and my kid uh, my daughter when I, when she goes out to a party I, say, Where, I don't care what happens at this party you cannot take a drug from anybody no matter how well you know that person no matter how much you may trust that person you cannot take drugs from that people because that's the nature of the story today and the book was really written i think for families like that so families could understand what is happening out there and why and where it, where it's rooted and maybe be better able to defend themselves then well it's been such a pleasure talking with you sam i appreciate i mean like i said i've got family members close to us that have been immediate family and we've been down this path but even reading the book it takes you on a whole nother journey and the levels and how deep this all goes. It's um, educational. Yes, I'm sorry about your family. 
but um, and we yes. all good. I think we all have somebody. We all have somebody close to us, and um, sometimes we feel like we have to go it alone. We don't want to talk about it, but you're not alone, and you do need to talk about it because it's a heavy burden and it's hard to watch and experience. Yes, I agree, and I think it's very important to tell those stories. The more people hear those stories, the more people we understand how common addiction is to all manner of things, and it becomes less of this kind of bizarre countercultural weird world and more normalized very much like cancer or what have you i believe in that i believe we need to talk about it endlessly very bluntly very forthrightly not hiding our words and that through that we understand that all of us have the brain chemistry to be addicted to something the more we understand that the more we will devise approaches to uh, addiction treatment that make sense uh, in a way that probably we have not for a lot of years. Well, again, Sam, I appreciate this time and this work. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, Don. Thanks so much for the thoughtful questions. Very appreciate it. You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical conversations.